Hey folks, this week on the pod, we've got Philip Dutra. He had a, kind of a career breakout on the West Coast a few years ago. Um, and then just last year, or well, this year, depending on when you're listening, uh, started fishing the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit as a rookie. Did really well. He's fishing the Invitationals next year. Um, and he's an interesting guy. He's kind of born and raised in the Delta, has a lot of knowledge based on that. Um, and just is, uh, kind of cool to talk about fishing with. So we talked a little bit about sort of his career and how he's, uh, overcome the geographic change. Um, and then we spent a bunch of time talking about, uh, big baits, uh, where he throws them, how he throws them, sort of how they can apply to tournament fishing, which I think is something he's, you know, in a unique position to, uh, talk about because he's got a lot of West Coast heritage. He's, you know, been in the big bait game for a pretty long time, uh, especially compared to a lot of folks back east who are, you know, trying to tournament fish and learn how to throw bigger baits. Um, so we kind of uh, spent some time on that. It was pretty interesting, and I think it made for a pretty good show. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, here's Phil. All righty, and we are joined now by Philip Dutra. Coming off his rookie season on the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit, uh, Philip, you missed a check at only one tournament. You made the title. You really had a phenomenal rookie year, honestly, especially I think it was basically your first time fishing back east. So, man, thanks for coming on, and congrats on a great start. Uh, thanks so much, Jody, for having me on. Um, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a blast, man. Really exciting, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of... Uh, uh, questions that I had answered this year, and you're absolutely right. I never had made a cast east of Nevada until about 12 months ago or less. So yeah, it was it was a good it was a good year, no doubt. And you made you did the whole move. You know, you and the family moved to Alabama. You've got a Gunnersville address now. Like this was this was calculated. And we talked about this last time you were on the show, I think. But like mm-hmm. as far as just from the the big picture right now, and I want to get into the like some real nitty gritty fishing stuff soon. But as far as the big picture, how has the move worked out? Just how are you feeling? I know, you know, the pro circuit's not there anymore. It's the invitationals now, like stuff changed around you, but how do you feel like that whole process went? Like, do you feel good about it? Yeah. Um, the move was great. The family, we all, um, were more than ready, uh, you know, to get out of California and kind of the, everything going on over there. So we love it here. Uh, we were very fortunate and blessed that we were able to also move with our best friends and their kids. So we weren't totally out here lonely and then also moved pretty close to Justin Lucas, who's been a good friend for a long time. So at least we didn't come out, you know, moving somewhere where none of it, my, you know, my kids, my wife, myself, that we didn't know anybody um, found a great church, met a lot of good friends there right off the bat. So it's been good, man. We feel like we really haven't missed a step. We love Alabama. We love Gunnersville. We love, um, we just love it here. We love being in the you know more wooded area compared to the Bay Area, and it's been great. And then in regards to the tour, um, you know, yeah, the, the change that happened to me, honestly, uh, it's not a huge deal. I know I hear people talk about this. They like it. They don't like it. Whatever. 
the end of the day, it's the, it's the road to the Bass Pro Tour, which is the ultimate goal. The goal is never just to fish the, uh, this tour, whatever, you know, the Invitational Tour or, or the Tackle Rouse Tour, what we called last year. That was never the goal. The goal was always to move up. This is still the road to do it. Um, the payouts, you know, they haven't changed significantly. Um, MLF has to do what's best uh, and, and, and make sure that they have a circuit for us and, and this, you know, things are changing and whatnot. So, yeah, all in all, I'm happy, man. I'm ready to go fishing. I am so ready to go hit the tour. So, yeah, there's still six events. It's still the way to get to the championship or, I mean, the uh, the, the, the Bass Pro Tour. And we can qualify for the uh, Red Crest, which is cool. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I'm actually, more, I'm extremely excited. I'm more excited than last year because last year there was a lot of question marks for me, personal for my own self. Can I compete? Can I catch in places I've never been? Is the region's going to be way different than what I'm used to back in California and, and all those things. So now that I had a year and like you mentioned, I, I cast checks at six of the seven events uh, or five of the six or whatever it was. Um, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence for myself. Like I can do this and I can compete. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. Nice. That's, uh, that's good. And I feel like, yeah, you, I mean, you, I would say pretty convincingly proved that you've got what it takes to fish back East. I don't think anyone like, I don't think that anyone really doubted it, but I think that like me personally, it wouldn't have surprised me if there had been a longer adjustment period. Um, and it seems like mm-hmm. you didn't really have that. It was, I don't want to say it was easy, but you came over and hit the ground running. Um, did it feel like when you were, when you were going out, let's see, the first tournament was at Rayburn. Um, like I have to put myself way back in, you know, the distant past, you know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. did it feel like, how did you feel just starting the season? Like, did you feel comfortable like you were ready to do this or was it like scary idling out on day one uh on you know uh, a legendary yeah, lake? So, yeah so to be honest it was a little bit of everything and, it, and it's maybe a little long-winded answer but for me and i may have said this before to you or last time on the podcast uh this was this was like you mentioned a calculated plan to move here and fish the tour but uh three years ago I never thought I'd be fishing anywhere but the California Delta. And it was never even a dream of mine to move back here. It wasn't realistic. It wasn't in the cards. I always tell people it was a fantasy, not a dream. Because a dream, a lot of times you kind of work towards a dream. Um, it was never a dream of mine because it was unrealistic. And a lot of things happened and everything just radically changed. And uh, it happened so fast. So coming out here, um, I was excited when I won Anger of the Year on back, you know, on the West. And I was excited that I qualified. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was so excited cause I was like, this is a fantasy. I get to explore all these lakes. It's going to be awesome. At the same time, I've never made a cast east of Nevada. I have no clue what to expect. And then I'm, I remember rolling, rolling up to Rayburn and, you know, you see guys that I've watched my whole life. And again, that I was never really thinking that I would ever compete against guys like, uh, Skeet Reese, you know, launching the boat and, and, uh, Michael Neal and these guys and, so yeah, I, yeah, I remember at Rayburn, I was I was very nervous, it's, and I I am scared of failure, and I, I think there's probably a, a good aspect of that. So um, I put a lot into it. I, it's hard for me to walk away from something and just say, well, it is what it is. I take it very, very, very personal. So I really wanted to you know do well, and um, I set expectations for myself. And and you know, leaving Rayburn, um, I got a check. It wasn't, you know, wasn't, I didn't make the cut or whatnot, but I was thrilled because again, for me, 
the fear was, am I going to be in 140th every event? I had no clue. I literally had no clue what to expect because I did not have a lot of diversity in lakes back home. Only in the last three years did I start fishing even a few lakes like Clear Lake and Lake Shasta and Lake Orville. Um, I just was a Delta only all the time, my whole life, born and raised 250 days a year on it. So I was comfortable as a Delta, but, you know, being comfortable in one body of water uh, means nothing. Can that translate? And that it really doesn't mean anything. And so I was proving to myself um, or trying to convince myself, we're just seeing, could I do it? And so after Rayburn um, getting a check there, and then I remember after the third event, because I, I cut a check at Rayburn and then I made the cut it. Harris and I made the cut at Pickwick, the, the first cut. And I think after that is when I, when I told myself like, I, yeah, I can, I can do this. Like three checks in a row, two top 50 cuts. Um, so I started really gaining confidence, but it really wasn't until the end of the year going up north and going to, you know, doing the whole season where I felt like, okay, I, I really feel good about next year and I can't wait because I had a lot of nerves, man. I had a lot of emotions, nerves, worry, stress, you know, probably a lot of it is, too much and stuff I put on myself that I should have just let let it go let you know went with the flow and worked my hardest either way but at the end of the day um I don't have that right now and so that's why I think I'm more thrilled than ever to go fish this next year yeah that's uh that'll be cool because I do think oh I, I think fishing like mental stuff is very important in bass fishing um hey, oh and yeah. I mean gosh <laughs> it's got to help you if it's got to help you if you're just not nervous, you know, or not as mm -hmm. nervous. Like, that's got to be a factor um, Absolutely. going into the year. Well, yeah, and, you know, every time I made a day three, I mean, the goal, obviously the goal is to win. The goal is to make the top ten. I've always had a set of goals, um, you know, per, per event. Like, what is the minimum goal? You know, say I have a horrible pre-fish, uh, you know, there's still a minimum goal of, you know, cutting a check or, you know, points and all these things. So, um yeah, so I, you know, for, for me, um, you know, after again the whole season, it just, um, it things just clicked more, and you know, especially going up north too, and no, no real clue of, I barely, barely ever fished for a smallmouth in my life, and um, so going up there um, was a huge help too, again for confidence and just putting things together, and um, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, I kind of forgot what actually the question that you just asked. I, Oh, uh, spaced out there. <laughs> you're all you're all good. Tell me, as far as like the fishing goes, um, was there a lot of stuff that you had to learn how to do, or were you able to rely just very heavily on like your prior your prior knowledge? Like, were there tournaments yeah, that cool. you were like, man, I need to figure out how to ledge fish, or I need mm -hmm. to learn. <clears throat> how to rig this drop shot for these particular smallmouth. Not that you haven't thrown a drop shot yeah. before, but maybe it's different, you know, like, or yeah. did you kind of know everything already? Did you find? Um, so uh, kind of both. So when it came to technique wise, one of the things that I've always prided myself on was versatility and um, the technique. So very few things that I haven't, uh, that I don't feel comfortable with. Um, you know, I love throwing five pound test. I love throwing 50 pound braid. I love throwing giant 12 inch swim baits. I love throwing four inch baits. So when it came to techniques, that's one of the things I think I've done well is I feel very good with everything, power to finesse, all that. But what I don't feel very good, and, and I'm glad I live on Gunnersville and I'm glad I moved back here. So hopefully in the next year or two, there are some gaps. Like you mentioned, ledges. I've yet to try to catch a fish on a ledge in my life. Now, 
on a what what I would consider a ledge, like a TVA ledge. Like back home, we fish humps, and I yeah. would say in my mind, I'm thinking a hump is a little different than a ledge. So yeah, I, you know, I fish deeper water, I fish humps, I've you know fished that, but like the whole ledge deal, I've still yet to catch a fish, even though living on Gunnersville, it's just been gone all year. But and then going up north, smallmouth, I had very little to no experience at all. So that was a huge question mark for me. And then, you know, even things like brush piles, to be honest with you. Um, I've watched people fish brush piles. I've never fished a brush pile back on the, I mean, I fish wood, but not, you know, and then also learning the side imaging a lot more. I definitely was doing a little bit of it back home. Like when I go to Clear Lake and stuff, but you don't side image on the Delta. And so even learning, and I felt comfortable with my grass. I have had my grass for three years and, and I've played with them and stuff, but just learning to do it more and learning to, you know, so there was some definitely some things that I still need to learn. You know, I haven't, I have yet to fish a blueback herring. Like uh, I think the second event this coming year will be my first blueback herring. Like, so, you know, I got some concerns there just cause I, you know, I can research it and all, but until you get out there and do it, you know, you got a bunch of question marks in your head. So yes, when it came to certain ways of fishing or certain regions, how they catch them, um, in regards to where the fish set up, there was some blank spots for me, but when it came to techniques that I, I feel totally, um, great with whether I got to pick up a drop shot or, you know, a moving bait or a top water and all that I feel good about. Cool. Cool. What were like this year, what were a couple of those like key, uh, I guess, learning moments or like, like key challenge tournaments where mm. you had to yeah. kind of add to your repertoire on the fly. Um, so I, 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 well, I was going to say I bailed myself out, but I really didn't because it was my worst event on Gunnersville when everybody was fishing the ledges. Uh, I had found another bite. I was nervous about it. Um, I did have a really good day two, um, but my day one was the worst day. It was, it was the worst, uh, day one or day two I had all year was on Gunnersville and it was why I didn't cash a check there. And, uh, everybody was fishing ledges and I could not figure it out. I, I, at that point, um, so that, that definitely hurt me i think some learning things i learned too this year and uh one of them wasn't a tour event it was a toyota i fished back here but i didn't realize you know being in california we don't get rain as probably everybody knows but um or very little yeah. uh there was an event on gunnersville uh toyota event early in the year we had here and i had a great day once and i was in like 20 something place out of 340 or 20 well it rained overnight and i'm just thinking big deal it rained overnight well i didn't realize it rained two inches because that doesn't happen back in california overnight and the lake came up two feet from when we got off the water on day one to when we got off the water on day two and i had no clue when i launched the boat on day two you would think i would know that i thought my graphs were messed up all day i was offshore fishing and i was i was i couldn't figure out why it was saying seven feet when i was five feet yesterday and it took six hours in the day some guy yelled out from a dock yeah the lake came up two feet last night and then it all clicked and that that hurt me on that day because I couldn't catch anything and I was spun out. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why my grass were not reading properly. And it sounds ridiculous. But again, when you're from California, lakes don't come up an inch overnight, let alone two feet. Um, and I don't know how I didn't notice it on the bank. I don't know. But anyway, so that was like a learning curve lesson or um, <clears throat> also a few other lessons I had. Um, you know, I, I think like, like we kind of mentioned, learning how to fish brush piles, um, just kind of learning that process. Um, and I caught some on it at Rayburn, you know, Rayburn, everybody or a lot of guys were fishing the brush piles or um, the wood and standing trees and, and whatnot. So, you know, learning those things absolutely were um, challenges. Uh, thankfully, the majority of it panned out for me. And I, I had a couple of stumbling blocks along the Toyota Central this year. 
but I'll take that since the tour was obviously number one in, in the focus. And I felt like I got out of the tour pretty good overall in regards to, I, I don't feel like I ever missed any major deal or if I missed it, I found something else to compete. Um, so I, I don't feel like I left an event and, and, you know, going, man, I really missed this, but at least I learned, but I still missed it and it hurt me. So um, I was really excited. And honestly, I think a lot of that has to do too with, you know, uh, Andrew Loberg and I travel together and, um, you know, we, we share, we share a lot of what we're doing and we talk about everything. And so I think that helps too, you know, when, uh, when two guys can, you know, brainstorm off each other and then it kind of helps you not miss something. Like there may be one little thing that Loberg mentioned to me or, or vice versa that kind of allows you not to miss something. And so I think that probably helped as well. I know on the brush piles, like he, he definitely, um, you know, just kind of told me, Hey, you need to look out for brush piles and X, Y, and Z. And, and even though I didn't really catch many fish on Rayburn, I did weigh, I think one or two off brush piles and caught them mostly in the grass. Um, but you know, things like that, I think helped to not miss anything. Um, but I honestly, I think moving into this next year, I'm still under that same deal because I've only fished, you know, six tours, seven tour events last year. So again, I'm going to go to blueback herring lakes and I'm just hoping and praying that I don't miss something that everybody else knows about blueback herring that I don't learn until after the event. Right. So those are the things that I'm trying to prevent in, in my research and, you know, prep and, you know, pre-practice and those things of trying to make sure I don't miss something, you know, you know, blatantly miss something that because I'm from California, I didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And this year there are several kind of unfamiliar fisheries on the schedule. There's a few that seem like they are going to be right in your wheelhouse. Um, yeah, but there's, you know, I think Clark's Hill and Ufala are going to be a little bit strange, a little bit unknown mm-hmm. for a lot of people on tour. Uh, cause mm-hmm. those are not heavily tournament fished lakes, at least historically, you know, in the last five or 10 years. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You're right. You can't find a lot of info on them, public info or anything. And, uh, I hear, I could be way wrong on this too, cause I haven't researched a lot, but I, I think I could be wrong, but I think Ufala has a decent amount of stained or dirty water in part of the lake. Um, that makes me feel good. And then, um, yeah, Clark's Hill, I have no clue what to expect there. Uh, they say it's clear water, blueback herring. So, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's a big question mark for me. Okeechobee, I've never been more excited. Uh, and again, I've never been to any of these fisheries, but at least on paper, what I've seen, um, you know, watching these events, over, you know, since I've been a kid, it looks like, Delta you know, guys do good there. <laughs> yeah, the Potomac looks really good. The Mississippi looks good. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, and and I, but I get excited to go to places too, like Clark's Hill, that I have no clue what to even expect because I love the puzzle. That's one of the things that draws me to bass fishing is I love new puzzles all the time, like figuring out a new, you know, whether it's the species or whether it's the region or whether it's a new lake or a new way of fishing that you're not familiar with. It's it's always fun for me and exciting, uh, you know, trying to figure that out. So I'm excited for it. I am nervous, obviously, because there's points attached and I'm trying to make the Bass Pro Tour. And so, you know, th- th- that makes you a little nervous there that you don't want to miss the boat big time and, and then kill yourself in points from one event. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, it'll, it'll be fun. It's, it looks like a, a cool, diverse schedule. So I'm, I'm excited for it. What was uh, like your preparation and your sort of research and even your pre-practice uh, like, strategy like what did what did you do to prepare for a tournament last year and then like are you modifying that at all this year or are you and i guess sort of by extension uh loberg are you going to do the same thing 
Yeah, I think for the most part, we're going to do the same thing. It worked. Um, you know, we both had a good year. We both made the title, um, oh, which yeah. was <clears throat> that was the that was the first goal we, which we accomplished for both of us too. So that was a that was really exciting for both of us. Um, I, you know, so for me, um, when we're at home, it may be a little different. Lowbird research may be a little different than mine. When we're at home in, in regards to what we look at or what I found for me personally, um, I don't. I kind of learned that I don't like doing as much um, in-depth research. And what I mean by that is I, I definitely need to do the basic research. You know, what, what general areas of the lakes are players and what's the general weight that you're looking for and how does the lake set up, right? I'll look at it on Google earth. I'll look at it on some maps to get a, a you know, um, a feel of how the depths are and, and all that stuff. But in regards to really trying to fine tune and get, you know, all kinds of in, in-depth information, for me, that actually makes me more nervous and gives me anxiety. And I realize it's because at that point, then I'm not fishing free in my pre-practice. I'm going with preconceived notions um, or, you know, um, say like, for instance, some guy was trying to give you, it doesn't even have to be on two. I'm just saying in general GPS waypoints. Oh, you need to go here. You need to go here. You need to go here. I, I, I completely stay away from that because it, it stresses me out. Then you're going to try to catch other people's fish or what you, and all that stuff. And for me, maybe that works for some guys. Um, for me, I find myself stressing way more. Oh, you know, X, Y, and Z said I'm supposed to catch them on this little worm, and why aren't I catching them on it? Where maybe that worm doesn't even look good to me, um, but I'm throwing it because somebody else said so. So for me, it's more about getting familiar with the lake, the layout, the depth. Um, you know, obviously what kind of species, and then general, you know, in general areas like, hey, this portion of the lake is where it mostly goes down. You know, um, and then for me after that. Um, we, you know, I do pre-practice and I think that's a huge help, especially because I've never been to any of these lakes. So for me, it's a lot of it, the pre-practice, just getting familiar with how to run the lake. What, what, you know, you can always see so much on Google earth and what, uh, whatnot. So how does the lake actually set up? And so spending a couple of days on each lake, even if it's a month before, just getting familiar, you know, even little things like where are the launch ramps, where are the safe places to launch, all that adds up uh, time. And if I was trying to do that on official practice, I had never been to these places you know, you might go to a launch ramp or it's closed or this one is dangerous or you didn't realize that running, you got to be careful. Like learning how to run Rayburn, right? Like when you're from California, you have no clue about boat lanes and, and all this timber that you could hit. That was scary. So I went yeah. really slow in pre-practice. I went really slow because I don't know, you know, the guys that live on there, they know exactly where it's dangerous or not. So, but then in the tournament, because I pre-practiced it, I was able to run faster, obviously, or even in official practice. I didn't have to waste time because I had lanes that I had done. So, you know, so pre-practice was a huge part. Loberg and I both, we traveled together. Uh, we are modifying it a little bit this year. We're going to do a little less pre-practice, especially because the off-limits is, is longer yeah, this year. It's longer so the, in between. Yeah, it's two weeks longer. So the actual pre-practice of actually locating bass isn't really going to matter as much. Um, even though last year, you know, we did, and we always, you know, we always talk about, Hey, it's still two weeks before a lot can change in two weeks. Um, again, it was more about getting familiar with the lake, but now it's a month in advance. So, you know, so much can change. So again, we're modifying our pre-practice a few, you know, a, a little bit less than what we did last year, but everything else, I'm going to keep the same, um, you know, uh, just a little bit of Google earth, a little bit of looking at the maps and then figuring out the basics and then putting in my pre-practice. And, um, you know, for me, the way I pre-practice, I, uh, you know, I, I love to be versatile and I try to find as many possible ways of catching bass as I can, because at the end of the day, um, what hurt me at Gunnersville 
what, and I knew it going in and it wasn't because I wanted it to be this way, but I only found one way to catch him. And I thought, I thought I could win the event doing it, but I also was scared because I'm, I'm always scared if I only have one way to catch him. That scares me sometimes. I like to have backup, you know, plan B, Uh Oh, you know, if I don't, if I don't catch him this way, or if I only catch one or two or three, how do I make sure I catch a couple two pounders or a limit or whatever? So, um, you know, so I, that's one thing I try to do in practice is find as many possible ways of catching them as I can to feel confident in. So, yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Did you have in pre-practice last year? Did you have times where like you found fish and it was they were fair in the tournament? Because uh, I feel like a lot <clears throat> um, of times people talk about that like not working. Yeah, you know. This worked for me back in California a lot, too. And I think the Delta can teach, you know, there's a lot of guys that have come out of the Delta that are fishing on the national level. And I think there's some unique things that Delta can teach you um, because of windows and timing and tides and adjustments. You have, if you're going to perfect the Delta, um, it's not about spots. It's about exact timing and every little detail matters. And so, um, so back here, I think, uh, what, what I was able to translate is, is, um, just like in pre-practice, I, I'll give you a great example. In pre-practice at Rayburn, I found them, it was much warmer, like much, much warmer. I forgot how many, I think we were there two or three weeks before. And, uh, there was a freezing cold snap that came in in between. And I found, uh, I actually found these fish on a big giant 12 inch bait, swim bait. And I believe it or not, I was only catching like two and a half pounders, but um, I had found these uh, like an area that had a lot of them. And obviously those aren't big at Rayburn, but I, for, compared to what I was catching and I had just found an area that had a lot of them. And so come back to the tournament a couple of weeks later, way different weather, it was freezing cold, water temps dropped, everything was completely different. Um, and so my pre-practice didn't go very, or I'm sorry, my official practice didn't go very well. And so at the end of my practice, I said, uh, with a couple hours left, I was like, well, let me go back to that area that I found them on the big swim bait. And they're probably not going to eat the big swim bait, but I know that there is a concentration of fish that lives in this area. They might move out 50 yards. They might move a little deeper. They might move to the right, left, but I know that they're not going to, you know, swim 10 miles away. And so I went there and I pulled up a little finesse bait, six pound test, and I got two bites right away. I pulled up and I said, okay, this is where I'm coming because I didn't find anything else. And I ended up cashing a check doing that. So pre-practice for me and what I've always said to, you know, back in California is you got to be really careful um, with pre-practice and official practice too. You can't put too much stock in anything. And for me, practice and pre-practice is not about dialing it in. It never is about dialing it. Actually, I think that's when it hurts guys. Um, it's about finding patterns or baits that they like and areas. And they might be, obviously you're going to go back to that same exact area. If you found them there in practice, but you better be willing very quickly to adjust, whether that's bait, technique, um, you know, watercolor might change. So maybe you got to change color of your bait. But if you think, hey, I found them on a black and blue jig on this stretch, whether it was yesterday, five days ago, or two weeks ago, and I'm going to come back here and flip a black and blue jig, and, and then you don't catch them, well, is it, did the water change color? Did the water drop? Did the water raise? Did the water temperature? I mean, where is the season? If they did move, did they move just slightly that way? Did they move to the bank? And so I think a lot of guys give up on what they found because they're going specifically with that bait and with that exact stretch instead of saying, hey, there's a group of fish right here. Where, were they, where are they going to go if they're not right here? 
And, and that's also, I mean, you can play that all the way down to a day-to-day scenario. I mean, that can happen in, in, in and I saw that happen um, in a day-to-day scenario, actually at Rayburn. Um, not that I did great at Rayburn or anything. I caught a cash to check, but everybody in the area that I was fishing, I was fishing grass and there wasn't a lot of grass there. And everybody that did really well was fishing the brush piles. But um, I cashed a check and got out of there. So that was good. But um, everybody was coming in throwing LVs and rattle traps and, you know, um, and uh, uh, chatterbaits. And it was freezing cold in the morning. These guys were throwing it up on the bank and I was catching them a little bit deeper on a finesse rig, six, seven, eight, nine feet of water. Well, just at the end of that day, um, and I would every once in a while I throw I throw a rattle trap around and it was like this isn't happening and it shouldn't be happening. It's freezing cold. The fish moved off, uh, but at the end of the day it got really nice and warm. In the last 20 minutes, I picked up a rattle trap. I picked up a rattle trap and I caught nine fish and they wouldn't eat it the rest of the day. And everybody that came through was saying, oh, "I got zero fish, one fish, zero fish, one fish," and they're all throwing rattle traps. And it's those in one, you know, just in that one eight hour window in the last 30 minutes of the day, it got warm enough where I took off my jacket and I go, okay, they might actually move up to the bank. And that happened within minutes, right? That wasn't a day, a week or whatnot. And so was the guy wrong who was throwing the rattle trap against the bank in the morning? Well, the fish were there. They were just 20 feet behind his boat and they just moved up and down. And so I think you can kind of extrapolate that whether it's weeks out or, or the day before and just realizing that your practice shouldn't be about dialing anything. And actually that's when I get the most nervous because one little change the next day in weather, overnight temperatures, rain, whatever, if you're so dialed in, you're not ready to adjust. And if you just say, Hey, look, all I'm trying to do is find, you know, you know, especially for me, cause I don't know regions and stuff. There's definitely different colors or different baits they like better than others. But if I can just find that and then find an area that has fish and be willing in the tournament to move over 50 yards, uh, or move up 50 yards or, you know, change techniques, uh, instead of fishing a reaction bait, fish a bait on the bottom or, or vice versa. Um, that's where I think the, the big difference is. So yeah, long winded answer there, but yeah, that would, that would be my answer. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. You, I guess the window kind of stuff and like figuring that out, that's really born of the Delta, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that's something that you pick up on instinct like you hone your instincts out there, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think on the Delta, you know, I, I don't think, and I don't think I'm biased saying this, um, but because you have windows on a tidal fishery and there's only a few tidal fisheries out here, you understand really quick. If you're going to do well on the Delta, you understand. I have 15 minutes on this bank right here, high switch, low switch, uh, you know, depending on the time of year, high income is, the last hour of the income, the fish on this stretch set up because X, Y, and Z, or the middle of the outgo over here, this, they only eat here. And when you fish that thousands of days, or even you didn't have to do thousands of days, but when you see over and over and over that you could be on the best stretch in the entire Delta, but there's only 20 to 40 minutes a day where those fish bite. So if you're there the rest of the entire day, you'll think this stretch sucks. And I never caught a bass because of windows. And so even though there's not tides at lakes, I think what that's helped some of the Delta guys, I know for myself, is for me, it helped me pay attention to every little detail, even if it has nothing to do with tide. It's every minute detail matters because I learned that on the Delta, because on the Delta, it is visual and you see that. So whether it's, you know, um, little, the most minute details about your bait, the way you work it, the pound test what the fish are doing. There's a slight breeze. The breeze changed from west to north, northwest to south, or whatever it is. 
every little detail affects the fish. And I think a lot of people don't um, pick up on that. And so it's constantly a mind game and, and mental and adjusting. Um, I, I remember I'll give you one extreme example. Last year when I was at, um, uh, or well, yeah, I guess it would technically be last year, 2021, when I was at the U.S. Open at Lake Mead, um, I, and that's a really tough place to catch a bass, period. And um, I, I was in an area, and there was about, no joke, I kid you not, it was so extreme, but I, I, I it's a great example. There was like a one to two mile an hour wind. I mean, so low, that you, you really didn't even realize it was there. Um, but there was the slightest itty bitty ripple on the water. And these, I don't, I think they were shad. They might've been, I don't know. I think they were gizzard shad. They were, they were kind of like popping in this cove all around. And I was talking to my co-hanger and I'm like, look at this man. And we started catching these fish on a little finesse bait and I, we caught a limit really quick, which again, at Lake Mead, if you catch a limit every day, that's, that's, that's doing something. And then all of a sudden, the little ripple went away. I mean, it was this, you're talking about, it wasn't a 10 mile an hour wind. We're talking like a two, three mile an hour wind that went to zero. And then all of the, the gizzard shad stopped and nothing surfaced. And I, I noticed it and I picked up on it. I told my client, I said, wow, you see that the littlest, slightest ripple went away and all the gizzard shad stopped popping. And at the same time, we never got a bite. Well, then about 30 minutes later, that little itty bitty ripple came back and we still hadn't moved. And all of a sudden the gizzard shad start popping and all of a sudden we're catching them. Bam, got one, bam, got one. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And then again, about 10 minutes later, the ripple stopped, the gizzard shad stopped and then we didn't get bit. And I, I, I always remember that in my mind, like the most minute ripple, like I'm looking at Gunnersville right now, I'm sitting lo- looking at the lake right now and there's no wind, but yet there's still like a slight ripple. Right. And, and that's, and that's what I'm talking about. And I think so many people can miss things like that if you're not aware of it or, or again, from the Delta, it trains you that you have to be aware of maybe not the ripple, but it, we're so in tune with windows and minor details. And it's so black and white at the Delta, because as soon as that tide goes away, you go from catching, you know, I just caught 10 fish down the stretch in 10 minutes and I got 25 pounds in the boat. And then I know before it even happens, because when you fish it enough, that this is going to be gone in about five minutes. Five minutes go by, you can't get another bite. I don't care how long you stay there, it's done. And so you see that at the Delta play out like that. And so, again, I think it, it kind of cements that in our minds. Um, and it allows, for me at least, I think it's been a benefit. Is it, It's helped me really realize that every minute detail matters. Um, and so, um, so, yeah, I think that that's really helped a, a lot for me. That's uh, That's cool. Um, we, you talked about this just a minute ago and we, about big baits. And I wanted to ask you this, like, I wanted to kind of dive in on this one. Cause I think okay. that there, I, I feel like we've seen, uh, we've seen Carl Jogginson, we've seen Brandon Palinick apply a glide bait, uh, with some notable success and some notable failures. Um, but I feel like. I'm sure you do throw a glide bait, but I feel like you throw some other like big swim baits as well. Like you throw like some crank mm-hmm. down kind of stuff. And I, yeah. it, it doesn't take any convincing at all for me to believe that, you know, on a fishery that's got some hard cover, some grass, like on the Delta with a place with big fish, like that's a tournament weapon that should be in your arsenal. But like, how mm-hmm. have you found throwing bigger stuff to translate back east like what, what what's that been like and maybe you let's even start with what do you 
what kind of big stuff do you like to throw? Like, what's on deck or in your arsenal? And then maybe we'll talk about the application. Yeah, great question. I love this topic, and I think there's a humongous misconception about it. So um, most guys that know me, I, I'm a huge toxic bait uh, guy. I've been with Caesar and toxic bait since he created the first bait he ever made of a swim bait, and that was that goes back. Uh, don't quote me, but probably 15 years at least, maybe 17 years, um, when he was just making them for me and two other guys for the first six, seven, eight years, and we kept it a secret. So I, I do, I am partial to those. Uh, with that being said, I throw everything. I throw every, if it's a big bait and I like it, um, then I'll throw it. So I'm not, I, I don't just throw toxic baits. I throw all kinds of glides and um, I throw other swim baits and whatnot. But I, I love, and what I, and I think why I love them so much is not just because I've thrown them forever, but because um, not all big baits are created equal. And I'm by no means saying Caesar and toxic baits are the only one that's like this by any means because it's not. But there is, I think the bigger the bait that you have, um, more matters about that bait being good co compared to its competitor bait. Uh, the bigger the bait, the more they can see, right? It's a bigger profile. Um, so there's more that they can look at. There's more they can examine. There's more, there's just more to it. So what I love about toxic baits is he, when he created these baits, it was never about a business. It was never about selling them for the first six, seven, eight years. It was about him, me and one or two other guys, catching them and so he wanted to perfect these baits to catch bass in tournaments for us to win money and have an edge over other people so it wasn't like some companies that may come out and they're just trying to mass produce and make money and hey the thing catches a couple fish and it's good and all so i have so much confidence in his baits specifically because they catch they were made to catch bass even though today it is a full-time production but uh it but nothing has changed he's still a fisherman who loves to catch bass on his baits and that's so that's what I throw a lot of. He has a huge variety of crankdowns. You're right. You don't really see anything outside of uh, Chris Aldane, Polinick, and Jacobson that, at least for me, I haven't seen much that those guys throw the glides. They apply it. They have some success on it. Um, for me, I do throw the glides. I love a glide. But I also throw a lot of the other stuff, the rats, the crankdowns, um, bluegill profile, anywhere from a 4-inch wooden bait or resin bait all the way up to a 12-inch bait. Um, and again, that's one of the things I love about topic is cre he creates so many different lines. He doesn't just have one, you know, 10 inch swim bait. And so th that's what I love to throw. I have learned that it doesn't matter where you are in the country. If they're especially large mouth, I can't speak a lot for smallmouth or spotted bass, um, with these styles of bait. I know spotted bass love glide bait, but, um, I, I can't speak a lot for those, but I'll, with large mouth, um, anywhere there is large mouth and uh, either vegetation, stained water, or structure in shallow water they eat it and i know that for a fact i've caught them at the st lawrence river i caught them at champlain i caught them at rayburn i caught them at harris i caught them everywhere we went on tour this year except pickwick the only reason i didn't catch them pickwick is because i didn't throw it at pickwick because uh the weather and i just had other things now when i say caught them i'm not saying i weighed you know every fish on them or anything like that i'm just saying i threw them whether it was in practice pre-practice or the tournament i caught fish i did weigh them they eat it everywhere. And there's this mass misconception about baits like that and applying them as a tournament angler. Um, anyway, I'll pause there because I'll let you ask or for, before I keep just blabbing. Okay. Well, let's, I mean, let's like do the nitty gritty here. What tournaments this year did you weigh a fish on, like, let's say a big bait? Because that's where there's like, it's important in practice, but the rubber meets the road when you're putting fish in a live well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I'd have to rethink. I know the James River, both Loberg and I, Loberg actually posted a cool video, I think, catching like a four-pounder, which kind of saved him in the points. That was not his best event, but he caught a very crucial four-pounder um, that he had on video on, on one. Um, and I caught him and weighed him at the James, too. Caught him at Rayburn. Um, uh, that was actually free practice. Again, that was a super cold snap. Uh, caught and again, when I say caught and weight, I'm not. I don't whether it was one or three or whatever. Uh, oh yeah, I mean Harris, they all they all count. We're not fishing for hundreds yeah, of fish. Harris, You're fishing for five a day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, Champlain, I caught him in practice, but um, the largemouth didn't play nearly as much, obviously, as the smallmouth. And I did weigh some largemouth, but um, I did catch him on practice, which was pretty cool there. Uh, where else did we go? I'm sorry, let me think. Uh, uh, pick with Gunnersville. 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 I had an epic practice with them. Um, and I don't, I might've weighed one at Gunnersville on him. Um, but I was really kind of dialed in on one other deal, which w- wasn't going the big bait, but I really caught him and found him in practice on it. And then, um, uh, I'm sorry, where else did we go? Pickwick, Gunnersville, Harris. Yeah. I'm trying uh, to and then, back myself. <laughs> uh, then it was Champlain, St. Lawrence. I even caught him at St. Lawrence on it, but again, the large mouth there just don't play. So they, uh, you know, once I realized quickly that I didn't really fish for largemouth in the tournament. So, um, but what about so the I, uh, know, what about I the did. Toyotas? Because you fished Chickamauga yeah. and Dale yeah. and Gunnersville. Yeah, yeah, Chickamauga was a disaster um, in regards to <laughs> it was my worst term of the year, um, and I didn't. I don't honestly. I don't even think I really threw them there. Uh, I, yeah. I should have, and now I learned a lot about that. Uh, Gunnersville. Um, I threw him, but it was early in the year and, and, uh, the, the Toyota Gunnersville was early in the year. Dale hollow. We definitely caught him in practice. Um, but to, to be honest with you, my, my Toyotas, uh, I had like one great day on each event and one horrible day. At Chicken yeah, we'll, work on day. To, so, we'll work on Toyota consistency, but yes. Yeah. That was a, that was a, that was, there were some challenges there on one day on each of those events. But, um, and a lot of it too has to do with, time of year like any bait and so a lot lot of these events especially the toyotas were early in the year and i don't throw them in this cold of water yeah so like yeah and and or major cold snaps i'm not going to throw them and i think that's uh you and i were talking before we got on the podcast for a few minutes just about understanding when and where to throw them and how effective they can be when you understand like for example you don't just throw a frog like a lot of guys on tour are comfortable with the frog and they throw them in tournaments, but they also, those same guys also realize when it's January, I mean, I'm going to speak for probably most, I don't know, maybe there's a few out there that do when it's January, uh, you're probably not having a frog on deck in the tour event. Right. Um, yep. I mean, I, maybe in Florida, I don't know anything about South Florida, but maybe there it's warm enough. I don't know. But so you understand those basic concepts. Right. Um, and, and I think that's the problem with big baits is from the very beginning when big baits came out, I don't even know the 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it was. I remember I was a kid and back then there was very little understanding. You didn't have electronics. It was a completely foreign concept. Um, and there, there was this mentality and it was true too, that, Hey, you might throw this 12 inch Huddleston or whatever all day. And, uh, you might catch a bass every three days you go out like one bass literally every three days. And that's very true. And so I think, right off the bat when swim baits really hit the ground and when i'm talking about swim baits i'm talking about the bigger ones obviously not the little kayak and stuff like that but um but i think so these the people just were you know tournament guys are like well that's never going to be a player because you can't afford to risk that in a big tournament as they've developed and i think as knowledge has come out and as people get more comfortable with them and i know for myself 
once I realized that it's, they're a tool, they're like a drop shot. They are like a frog. They are like a punch. They're like everything else. And they all have their place. And when you throw them out of place, just like if you throw a frog out of place in January or, you know, ice cold snap, probably not going to have the best success, right? Or whatever it may be. You, you throw certain baits in super clear water that maybe not the best clear water bait. But in a big bait, um, I, I think people just, I, it's almost like they gloss over all that and they're like, it's just a bait that only catches one to two fish a day. I've had days in tournaments where I can catch 10 to 15 fish on a big bait and I can catch more and I have more confidence that I'm going to get bit than I do throwing a Cinco down a bank. Now, I'm not saying that happens more than vice versa or whatnot, but I think it's understanding when and what, what, what dictates that. Weather, you know, what, where the fish are. Um, again, like I mentioned, if there's vegetation, shallow water, largemouth, they eat it, period. Now, there may be days they don't eat it as good, just like they would need a top water as good on maybe a super cold front. Um, so it's understanding weather patterns and then gaining confidence and realizing that these are another tool that there are uh when you learn how to fish them properly they're like any other bait you can catch eight nine ten twelve fifteen fish a day on on these baits at the right times of the year with the right um under you know understanding where to throw them and so i think that's the biggest misconception is they're not a tournament bait they're too risky well everything is too risky if thrown a drop shot can be too risky right if thrown out of place out of in the wrong area or in a place where everyone you know is going to dominate with a flipping stick and you're trying to drop shot. Well, technically that's risky because you're probably going to get beat. Right. Yeah, so very risky on Okeechobee. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So you're probably safer throwing a Texas rig or a jig and not just safer, but you're probably going to have better results. I mean, I don't, again, I don't know. I've never been to Okeechobee, so it's hard to speak, but from what it sounds like. Um, and so that's, I think where, there's this, again, this mis misconception. And I think because there's, there's definitely more today knowledge about big swim baits, I would say in the last, you know, three, five, seven years than there's ever been. I mean, it's, there's a whole culture, but here's the other side of the coin. I think what scares tournament guys away is there, the swim bait culture is probably it's again, I, I don't, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think it's probably the only like subculture in bass fishing that really has like a whole culture around it. There is a yeah. whole culture of bass fishermen that do nothing. They don't even know, uh, not all of them, but a lot of guys in that culture, they don't care about tournaments. They don't care about a jig, a drop. They don't care. And, and, they're, and that's great for them. There's not a right or a wrong. This is what they love to do is they want to go out and throw a 14-inch swim bait and try to catch the 14-pounder, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they want to do. But I think when tournament guys see that or hear about that, it, it's – it's it well yeah again that kind of turns me off of that's not going to work but what about a seven or eight or a nine or a ten inch wooden bait that not a 14 inch one like i don't throw a lot of swim baits that are over 12 inches most of the ones i throw are actually 11 and a half to smaller so they're big but they're not ginormous like some guys throw those ginormous ones yes you're going to get much fewer bites but that's what they're going out for and so when you have a swim bait culture that will post hey you know I've been throwing this thing for four days in a row and I finally caught my fish. I finally caught that 13 pounder. A tournament guy's like, they brand, they, they clump it all into one giant, uh, you know, clump of, Oh, this is swim baits and this is that culture. And that's not going to work for me, but I can go out and throw a, a toxic bait whippersnapper. That's like a four and a half, five inch wooden bait and catch 20 fish a day on it. But they, they don't even recognize that because in their head, I think that's well, and I know just talking to a lot of people, it's this mentality of a one fish, two fish kind of deal. And so um, I think because of the history of swim baits, I think because there's a subculture 
that out there. Um, that's not necessarily, again, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it, I think it twisted in tournament guys' minds. And then think about it too. You grow up as a tournament fisherman. Swim baits are also newer, uh, relative to other baits. When you're watching the elite series your whole life, you never see that bait, right? You never see a big eight inch bait. So you get conditioned to, this is what I need to do to fish on tour is I need to throw, you know, a jig and a crankbait and, you know, uh, whatever spinnerbait and all that other stuff. So it, it's, it's also conditioning, I think. And so there's all these reasons why I think they're not um, as well known. They are definitely growing like never before. And I think they're grabbing more of people's attention um, like never before, but they're still very, uh, un, you know, not understood very well at all, in my opinion, from the tournament guys being, and they do play a huge role. Like I said at Rayburn, and that's a great example of, I didn't even throw it in the tournament, but two weeks before, I was in an area that I caught a bunch of 12 inchers on like a chatterbait and they weren't good fish. And I was like, Oh, there's a bunch of fish here. Let me just see what happens if I throw a 12 inch glide. Well, I catch like seven fish in 10 minutes and they're all two and a half pounders in the same cove. I threw a chatterbait in and caught a bunch of 12 inchers. So that clued me in like, Oh shoot, there is a little bit better quality of fish here. Um, and at that day, and that's what clued me in where two, three weeks later, yeah, I didn't catch them on the big swim bait because the weather, I, again, it's understanding the weather. When the weather is right, it outperformed a, a chatterbait in 10 minutes. I had, you know, again, seven, again, not, not that they were giants, but seven two-and-a-half pounders compared to catching a bunch of 12, 13 inches on a chatterbait. Um, so, anyway, I think, again, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it and understanding it. And then the other problem is, and I, I know for me, and uh, actually Caesar, the owner of Toxic Baits, was the one who really helped me understand and I'll say this is one clue I'll give to people. I think one of the worst things you can do is actually what you're going to hear opposite is from most people. One of the worst things you can do with the big swim bait is go out all day and just throw it. Um, and and you, you would think that that would be the best thing you can do to learn it, right? In my opinion, um, after a couple of years of having a, a lot of success on it and then having a lot of failures on it uh, back in the day, because I just threw it all the time. Well, once I realized that it was years ago and it stuck with me ever since Caesar told me one day, he said, man, just go fishing and do what you do and have that big swim bait on the deck and fish all day. And when you come up to a spot where you go, man, that spot right there looks amazing. Pick the thing up and make two casts with it. And if you don't catch one, no big deal. Put it down and, and, and go do what else you were doing. And that's it. And if you fish with it that way, I think you gain way more confidence because you're not throwing. Cause if you go out and you, you know nothing about it and you're like, I'm going to throw this thing all day and learn it. You go out on the wrong weather day or there's a clue you don't understand about it yet or time of year, water temp, whatever is wrong. You throw that thing all day. You never get a bite. You'll never throw it again. You're like, yeah, I tried that swim bait thing 10 years ago. It didn't work for me. I never got a bite. I threw it all day. And so I think it can hurt you more to try to go and learn it by throwing it all day long. If, instead of putting it on the deck and saying, you know what, I'm just going to go fishing. And every place that I think is good, that means I might make one cast or I might make 200 casts in a day. But every time I pick that up, it's going to look really good. And at the end of the day, it's not going to hurt me a bunch because I'm going to make two casts with it. And then I'm going to go back to doing what I do. And then you're throwing it in places where your, 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 your confidence, your intuition is telling you, even if you don't understand big baits, your gut is telling you, throw it here you have a much higher likelihood of getting a bite there than you do just throwing it all day and that's how you gain confidence because once you catch two three four fish on it it's like the world opens up and then things start clicking um but i think that's one of the greatest things i learned i won money i won tournaments on it back home 15 years ago and then i'll never forget it i think it was 2014 
there was a uh, to- uh, Toyota on the Delta, and I was killing them leading up with the, with the big swim bait and team tournaments, winning a bunch of money on it, catching giants up on it up to 10 pounds. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to throw this thing every all day for this Toyota event. And I never do that. But I was just so confident with it. And I went out and bombed in that Toyota. And I remember going, what in the world just happened? I could have went out here and threw a frog and punched and probably made the top 10. The next day I fished a federation tournament. And I think I won that tournament throwing a frog. And I was like, what did I just do? What? And I just threw this whole tournament away. <laughs> because so, But that was that wrong conception of it. And I think understanding, again, where to throw it, not saying I'm going to throw it all day, not ever saying I'm going to commit to it because I never commit to anything unless that day it's happening and it continues to happen. I think that's the best thing, piece of advice I could get somebody, it could give somebody about trying to learn it because the majority of people that I talk to that go, yeah, I've tried that. And they tell me, dude, I threw that thing all day for two straight days, never got a bit. Seven years went by, I never threw it again. Again, if you didn't know anything about a frog and you went out in January in 40 degrees and threw it for two days and said, I never got a bite, I'll never throw it again. People would be like, well, dude, you, you didn't even throw it in the right time of year, the right temperature, none of that. And, and so, um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that, that would be uh, some advice that I would give to somebody out there that's a, trying to understand how to apply a swim bait properly. Yeah, I, I wouldn't like call myself some kind of swim bait expert, but it seems to me that like conditional windows are super important with that bait. But what yeah. you just described was more of a it was conditions but also it sounded a lot more like locations and you know like specific casts or specific spots is it a combination for you or is it really the the location the cast that's the one of the key factors um i think both conditions it took for me personally every single technique down to the ned rig drop shot all the way up to a big bait Everything in between is condition-based. Now, that doesn't mean they only eat, you know, a chatterbait or on a west wind that's 15 miles an hour and, oh, on a, you know, south wind they don't eat it. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But um, every condition matters to me, and temperature matters a lot, and activity of the fish and the environment. If I'm out there and, I, and wildlife is moving around, you know, squirrels are climbing in trees and fish are popping and birds are flying – and I see a fish jump here and there. That's a, you know, nature generally, at least what I find, kind of flows together, whether it's land animals and or, um, uh, you know, underwater fish for the most part. You know, when it's ice cold, like it's been an ice cold freeze up here or down here in Alabama, and I'm sitting looking at a bunch of geese right now that are all huddled up sitting on the grass. They're not moving. And probably with the cold snap, the fish right now, I'd assume, are a lot more lethargic right now because of it as well. Right. And I don't see squirrels and I don't see birds flying around or any of that. So for me, I always look at nature and I look at what's happening and the activity of the fish. If I throw, if, if fish are, you know, you, you know, a lot of people understand like when they throw a certain bait, how well the fish ate the bait, or if they could, if it's clear water, how far that fish and how aggressive it was when it ate that bait, those are all signs that help me. And, and, and when I'm throwing a big bait, yeah, I need activity levels to be higher. Right. I, I need the fish to be wanting to move around. I need them to be, you know, uh, a little bit more aggressive. Now, you can trick them and you can do all kinds of stuff that that even a lethargic fish, you can get them to snap on a glide bait and all that stuff. You can. But for me, again, high percentages, I'm, I'm I, always, I talk a lot about percentages in bass fishing. And for me, I'm always everything to me is the highest percentages. And for me, I want those activity windows that are 
that are that are high. I want a, a day when everything is blooming and, and life is, is is popping off all around me. And I think that's going to give me a much better chance than if everything's just still and calm. No fish are busting. I don't see bait popping. I don't see birds diving. And so I, I relate a lot of it to that. And I find that um, you, there's a lot of clues that in nature and in paying attention to the the wind the, the 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 winds and all these things. And the more you fish it, the more you understand, right? Like how many guys will tell you, "Oh man, we got a little wind." Man, the reaction bite should get better. I mean, that's you know gen general statement here, but a lot of times that's 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 everybody knows that right they've seen it over and over again you get a little win i might make the reaction by better okay cool so they're paying attention to that that uh you know weather pattern or whatnot but we forget about so many other ones and so i think for me that's the biggest thing man it's it, it, and it is location too uh location is a big deal uh and, and i'll say this i think there's a giant difference between a glide bait and uh a, a, another style swim bait that does not do the side to side action i have a theory that um, when you're throwing a rip bait, a spook, and a glide bait, those are all baits that do the side to side, right? Walk the dog, left mm-hmm. to right action. Compared to a crank bait that goes generally straight. Now it bounces off cover, so there's 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 this concept. There's it's not straight black and white here. But when I'm throwing a glide bait, in general, I believe a bait that goes side to side will draw a fish much further to move from their location to eat the bait compared to a straight bait. But that doesn't mean they're better. They, they have their time and place. For me, like when I throw a lot of toxic baits, um, that if it's not a glide toxic bait, for me, it's, it's ambush uh, casting, which is, you know, it, it's specific. Their window is three feet right next to that dock piling, right next to that weed edge, right over that hole. It's not drawing a fish 25 feet off a long tapering point. They, they generally, for me, they generally don't move as far I'm not saying they never will. I'm just saying this is my theory. This seems to be what the higher percentages are for me is a glide bait. I, I can throw, you know, over more open water than I can another bait, another bait. I gotta, I gotta have it tight to cover. I gotta have it tight to something. And so learning the different styles of big baits and how to apply them, I think um, is a big part of it. And again, all of this goes back to attention to detail. Um, and you can apply this to, you know, you talk to the best, if you ever, you know, listen to Aaron Martin's theories on drop shotting, even though we're talking about two completely different deals, he's going to get into the micro details and about the pound test, about the hook, about the action, about the color, about the reflection, transparency, all that stuff. Right. And it doesn't matter what technique we're talking about. I think when guys overlook details, yeah, they'll catch fish and yeah, they can win a tournament and yeah, they can be good. But I think the more you pay attention to the little details is the more it's going to help you, especially the bigger bait you go. Because like I said, I think the bigger bait, you have to be a little bit more um, accurate on things to get them to bite it in, in regards to whether it's color, because it's a bigger, much bigger, you know, profile bait. So if the color is wrong, it's a really big blob of color that's wrong instead of like a, maybe a little color on a fast moving bait. And so um, anyway, I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but uh, yeah, I think those are definitely things that I pay attention to on a lot of, uh, when I'm throwing the bigger swim baits and, and honestly, Jody, when I throw them, I'm so confident with them. You'll see a lot of times on my deck, um, if it's the right time of year and I'm fishing for largemouth, you'll see I'll have three, four, five big giant swim bait rods on the deck. And I may not make one cast with them, or I may make five casts with them, or I may make 300 casts with them in a day. It's just another tool, just like a crankbait is, just like a frog is, just like a drop shot is. It really is. And there are some tools that get used way more than others um in fishing and in life right you probably use a screwdriver a lot more than you use a saw 
But when you need a saw, there's nothing that can beat that saw, right? The screwdriver can't do that job. And I think in bass fishing, it's the same deal. There's tools that get used a lot more than other tools. Um, and some, you know, some are, you can, you know, work in year round, some work in season. Um, some are just better at catching fish than others. But the big swim bait is a tool and does have a place. It might not be a bit, as big a tool for me as a square bill crankbait. It might not be as big a tool for me as a flipping stick, but it, it's, I throw a big bait just as much as I throw a lot of top water or a lot of other things. It's in the right season and the right situation and the right cover. Um, and when I pick it up, I promise you this, every time I pick a, a big swim bait up, I am not hoping that I get that one bite. When I pick it up, I'm expecting to get bit just like any other thing I pick up because the conditions tell me now that doesn't mean obviously I'm going to get bit, but I mean, I'm not picking up like, Oh shoot, I'm probably not going to get bit. I'm, I'm going for a hell Mary here. No, when I pick it up, I'm trying to hit the single. I'm, I feel very good that I'm going to get a bite, whether I do or not. I feel like when I pick this bait up, whether I'm at this Lake Champlain and I'm trying to catch a three pound largemouth, or if I'm at the Potomac river or if I'm wherever, when I pick it up, I'm not just hoping I'm expecting. And I think, now that definitely comes with time. I've been throwing these baits for a long time, so I have a lot of confidence in them. But I just, again, I think that there's so many guys that have a misconception that, oh man, if I pick that up, it's only for a hell mary. And you know, if I get, you know, if I get bit, it's kind of luck and it saved my day. But odds are I'm not going to get bit. That's the wrong mentality. You got to throw it knowing I'm going to get bit, and I'm going to get bit on this point right here. And if I don't, put it down and pick something else up. So anyway, all right. So we have. Uh, I feel like. Then I feel like there's a a fair amount of just a, a big body of tournament knowledge. Not huge, but like we've got knowledge about the glide bait right now. But for the crankdown, for these style baits, the Toxic makes, they make a wake and crank, I think. They make mm -hmm. a whippersnapper uh, mm -hmm. and then a wade hog and maybe a couple versions yep. of that. And maybe there's some others, but like... What are the differences between those baits? Like, and what, when are you picking up one or the other? Like, are you carrying one of every possible one in your boat? Or is it like, I generally, like, this is my tournament one. This is my Delta one. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. yeah, good question. He, um, he makes a ton and I don't even know the names of all of them because he makes a bunch of different baits. Um, and he makes them from very big all the way down as small as the whippersnapper. I would say, so the wake and crank was the original. That was the very first one ever made. Um, that was the one I, for the first seven, eight years, that's all he made. And that's what we threw. And I love that bait to this day. Um, we cut, I throw it on tour. It's one of my most confidence. It's a little bit, I think it's eight and a half inches long. I could be off the half inch either way. Um, and it, you can crank it down. Um, it's a great just overall bait. Then there's like the um, Wade Hog, which is like a bluegill profile, so it's smaller, yep. um, and that's more of a that you can. In any of his baits, he makes versions. He makes crank down versions. He makes floating versions to weight. So with all of his baits, um, they're not like oh the Wake and Crank. Oh, we, you know he makes a Wake and Crank that dives extra deep, normal deep, floating, you know whatnot. So then there's the so then there's the Wade Hog, which is one of it the most popular, if not the most popular, on the Delta. I don't know if it's his number one bait around the country but i know it's probably if it's not number one it's number one or two the wade hog it's a great waking bait it's probably the best or one of the best of his wake true wakes but also is good underneath again it's a bluegill profile a little bigger one of my favorites that i have on the deck literally the entire year um and i'll have 
a mixture, but one that never comes off is the whippersnapper. It's a basically it's a smaller version of the weight hog. Um, I don't know the exact dimensions on it, but it's smaller than the weight hog. Um, I uh, actually I think I posted even a couple videos this year catching them like it did James, and I, I was posting pictures because they don't always just catch big fish. Like I caught a like a two and a quarter pounder at the James I had on camera. I posted it a, a couple months ago on Instagram, just showing that. Like, and that was, a, I weighed that fish. I needed that fish. And I felt confident when I picked it up, that was probably the best bait I could throw next to that piece of wood, even better than a Cinco or a Chatterbait or whatever, that I would get a bite and is a two and a quarter pounder. But anyway, so the whippersnapper is a great bait because it catches, it, it is, the, I think it's his smallest bait, um, but it catches everything. I mean, I can catch a pound and a half on it. I could catch, a, I could catch a 12 pounder on it. Um, I've caught giant, I've caught them all the way up to 10 pounds on it. So I have a lot of confidence and it's, for me, it's the bait that I feel like it probably, if I had to pick one bait to get the most amount of bites on in any given situation, there is definitely times and situations where I am going to go with a bigger bait and I think I'm going to get bigger bites, um, in special situations, but just blanket statement all throughout the country, the whippersnapper, uh, I have a lot of confidence on. So the weight hog, the whippersnapper, I love his rat. A lot of people don't talk about his micro mink. That micro mink is amazing. I catch him everywhere on that thing. Um, and then you have some really big ones, like some four-piece, or I shouldn't even say really big, but like 11, 12-inch that are like four-piece um, deals. Um, I do throw them. I'm, I, uh, I'm not, I haven't thrown them as much as some of the other stuff. And then he also makes, um, he makes some plastic stuff too and some bigger like, uh, wave frogs and stuff that uh, paddle through like like a, a giant horny toad style bait um, that works really good in grass and mats. But yeah, I mean, so he, he has a big variety and probably, and then he, oh, and then he actually just came out this year with his juke glide, which I love. It's the bluegill profile, like the wade hog, um, but it's a glide bait. And I don't, I don't know if there's another one out there. If there is, I haven't seen them. Maybe there is, I haven't really looked a bunch, but it's, so it's not your traditional long and skinny glide. It's a short, stumpy bluegill profile glide and i love that thing um i've been throwing that a lot in the last i got one a couple years ago he gave me one in prototype and i love that bait so he makes a big variety and, and that's what i love is um depending on where i am and what i'm trying to to replicate bait related um you know it's not just a 10 inch glide right he's got the four or five inch baits six inch baits eight inch baits 10 inch baits 12 inch baits glide baits crank down different depth crank downs uh, he just sent me a package the other day and uh, he's got like a deep, deep, extra deep bill where I can get one of his winter snappers down six to eight feet deep. I mean, who's making a bait like that, right? I mean, that's crazy. I can get a bluegill profile wooden or resin bait down eight feet deep. Like nobody's doing that. And um, so anyway, Maven said more than I wanted to say, but but yeah, I mean, his, his, for guys that, that, you know, aren't familiar with his stuff, um, he's very innovative and I love it. And he continues to create new baits that work and new concepts. And that's one of the things I love. I, I just absolutely love about. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's his kind of lineup. He has a huge lineup. The only way to kind of see him all is probably go to his website or, or go to his Instagram. It's probably the best way to get a good uh, feel for all the different things he makes. But, um, and again, I, I do throw other companies, swim baits and glide baits and other things, but I, I would say 90% of what I throw is his because I know for a fact they work. And look, we all know there are some baits, that have it they have that it factor it could be whatever it could be that that you know everybody knows that rip bait or that old square bill was you know whatever it is and i'm not saying other big swim baits don't or do have it i mean there obviously are other swim baits that do have it but i know when i pick up his i'm not wondering dang is there something about this bait that just doesn't draw bigger ones 
I know his baits catch fish. I've been doing it for 17 years or whatever it's been. Um, won a lot of money and catch a lot of big ones and caught a lot of fish on them. So I'm very comfortable and confident when I pick up his baits. Cool, cool. What a, uh, as far as depth goes on your crankdowns, like sometimes, obviously, I would imagine you're going to almost wake it or maybe actually wake it. But mm-hmm. how, outside of the uh, very interesting eight foot divers, let's say, what is your general depth range for this? Because if, if you are targeting a fish that has a pretty small strike zone, right? Like it's going to be more effective in pretty shallow water anyway, I would think. Like what, yeah, what are you absolutely. looking to do with this bait? Zero, zero to three feet is the average for the majority of baits I throw at his. I'm throwing zero to three feet um, with the exception of I do have some other ones. The original one I got 16, 17 years ago that I caught, he's just, I mean, and now it sits on the shelf because it's like a, I, I, I'm scared to lose it because it was like the first one he ever made. But that one actually, the very first one he ever made went about five or six feet deep. And I caught so many giants on it. But here's the thing you can fish it um, in, in, you're right. Like I said, it's it, a smaller strike zone, but I would say it's the same thing with a crankbait, right? If I can fish a, a a square bill zero to four feet or i could fish a a crank down three feet it's the same deal right i can tick the rocks with it i can rip it you know through grass bring it right over the top of it i can bring it by a dock piling that's five feet of water i can get it down two and a half feet three feet so zero to three feet is that is where i'm 90 percent of the time with his bait with again without the exception of some certain baits and certain things i'm trying to do but again most of the time i'm throwing it it's more for me it's more shallower water vegetation structure so obviously you know, a lot of times my boat's not even in six, seven feet or deeper than that. Um, and then where I'm throwing to a lot of times is zero to five or zero to six feet deep. So again, it's, it, it's like where you would throw a frog or like where you would throw a, a square bill or, um, you know, I mean, you could fish a chatterbait is you can fish a chatterbait deeper effectively, but you know, it's a, it's a shallow zero to, I would say zero to six foot is where I'm most of the time with it. Just like where you'd be with a lot of vegetation oriented top water or reaction baits or flip in or any of that okay i uh was i found like a thing about your swim bait rod choices um yeah what what are you throwing these baits on because mm-hmm. your average like your average angler who doesn't own a bunch of swim baits already probably I'm guessing they probably don't have a rod that will let them effectively throw like an eight or 10 inch glide bait, at least really well, right? Yeah. Like you could probably get the yeah. job done depending on the bait, but Correct. what are you, so like, what are you chunking these things on? Yeah. So, um, depending, so all the way down to like the, the whippersnapper, right. That's his, that's a small, the smaller guy. It's still a couple, I think it's still a couple ounces. I don't have the weight in front of me, but you know, you can throw that on like a, a seven, six, um, you know, like a, a just, okay. Well, let me, let me back up and for a minute, I am a huge ginormous advocate of, and it's a lot. Uh, my theory is definitely opposite of what you're going to hear in most, uh, for most swim baiters, but I use a very uh, parabolic rod, um, softer, more parabolic and a looser drag than anybody. I know that throws a swim bait. Um, I don't lose a lot of fish, knock on wood, on a swim bait. Um, and so for me, that's what works. So when I say a seven, six, like style flipping stick, I use, even when I flip, I use a much more parabolic flipping stick than a lot of people do. 
So I like a very parabolic rod. It's very hard to find. Um, a lot of times I have to get them custom made because you don't find a lot of them out there. Um, but I do throw, I'll throw them anywhere from a seven six. Now it, for me, again, I don't throw a lot of his biggest, you know, his 12 inch, like four pieces I have, but I don't throw them as much just I, I for whatever reason, I, not because they don't work. I just ha- never really threw them a lot. So if I'm throwing his wake and crank, which is, I think the eight and a half one, it's not ultra heavy either. I throw that on anywhere from a seven, nine to an eight foot more parabolic rod, uh, depending on people's choice of like an a rig rod, a flipping stick, not a stiff, you know, ultra fast flipping stick, but because there's you can find both, or you can find eight foot broomsticks, and you can find an eight foot flipping stick that's more parabolic, old school. So more of the parabolic side of it. But um, yeah, so I mean, I don't have a. It's not. It, none of his baits are ultra heavy, like throwing a big giant uh, plastic or rubber, you know, mag or a big HUD. Um, at least the most of the ones I throw, they're manageable on from a seven six to an eight foot rod and yeah maybe not everybody has an eight foot parabolic rod in their lineup um but yeah you don't have to go all out crazy and get a rod specifically just that uh toxic actually has an eye rod that he sells um that is the i I forgot the name of it but it's literally an eye rod that's that he that caesar created for his baits kind of like an all-around rod and it's a seven six rod to throw his baits. Now, obviously it may not throw his biggest bait, but it's a very versatile rod for throwing um, the majority of his, of his bait. So yeah, you can get away with a seven, six on most of his baits. Um, or like a guy's, a guy's throw a rigs a lot with like a seven, nine or eight foot rod, um, depending on their choice of a rig. I would just stress for me, uh, parabolic is a major key uh, to landing the fish and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, but yeah, that's seven, six to eight foot somewhere in there i mean you could probably go as low as like a seven four on his smallest one but i think you might be stretching it a little bit there um i, I would definitely probably stay at seven six at the smallest okay and then are you running uh are you running fluoro are you running mono do you worry about gear ratios for this kind of stuff uh yeah what's your... I, i'm yeah, yeah m- uh, most of the time i throw 20 pound fluoro most of the time um, there's times when I throw straight braid very rarely. Now, when I was on the Delta, I would have one rigged up where if I threw it way back in the Thule's, like way back there, where it is like almost like throwing a frog way back there. Uh, obviously the floral would be a big problem. So I'd always have one rigged up with braid. I don't like braid as much, uh, just because I, I think you just lose more on the braid with a big bait. Um, so, and then there's a lot of times, um, I either throw it on floral or if I'm waking them on top, right, if I'm actually keeping it on top, fluoro, like any top water, is not your best choice. Um, I throw a co- like a copoly. Um, I throw 20 or 25 pound. I I'm throw old school P-line PF. I've thrown it from the beginning. Uh, I think it's like their most basic copoly. That's what I've just always thrown. Okay, um, cool. And it's, it's neut- neutrally buoyant, right, so it doesn't sink. So it keeps the bait on top because if you're trying to wake it, obviously with fluorocarbon, you're gonna, it's going to mess the bait up just like it would a spook or anything else. Um, so I'm either tw- 99% of the time uh, I'm 20 pound fluoro and 20 pound copoly, and I, you know, for me because I throw them so much, I have three to five rods rigged up all the time. So one or two of them will have copoly, and then two or three of them will have the fluoro, um, just depending on what I'm trying to do. Okay, how do you store all these baits in the boat? Because these are large baits they don't fit in tackle boxes very well 
Correct. Yes, that's been a trick. And I find I did a video this year. If you go on my Instagram, okay, I'm gonna go watch this and I, I am, immediately. <laughs> okay, I am on. Uh, if you go back, and I'll try to look and tell you when it was. But uh, Swimbait Underground makes a they make some really cool wraps. And mm -hmm. I I actually I don't even know the names of because they make a couple different wraps. But if you go on my Instagram and you go back mid this year, I did a, a video and it. It literally goes over how I store all my big baits. So what I found, and the video goes over all this, is I put them in um, like a plastic, um, you know, just like a little plastic bag. Like if you buy, you know, most things you buy in bass fishing come in a little plastic bag. But I, I have the little bigger ones that are um, that I can put my my swim baits in. I tried the hook keeper deal, but it seems like a lot of times when you put a bunch in there. They come off and they still hook each other. So I put them in the plastic bags, even though the hook can go through, but they generally don't. And then, um, and then I put them in these wraps, and um, and then and they can hold a ton. Um, they they had um, I, the big wrap they have. It's like a it's got it's like black with a blue on it. I've got like I bet you I can fit twenty to twenty five, and it's one wrap of the of assorted Wade hogs, whippersnappers, um, in his glides and stuff. And that's how I storm. So I have, uh, actually, I just found it. If you go to, oh, on my Instagram, I'm watching it right now. <laughs> yeah. If you go to May, I think it's May 11th on my Instagram. Uh, you'll see exactly how I storm. I hated forever. And in all things in bass fishing, I hate when my storage isn't efficient or it's frustrating or the baits get ruined or you, how do you store them? I mean, that's an ongoing thing for certain things for me. But this is the best way I've found to not take up a bunch of space because that's the other problem. You could put them in like these boxes, but you put them in a big open box and they get ruined. They scratch each other. They, the hooks are all over each other. And then you can only fit X amount in there. It means you got to have a bunch of boxes. They take a bunch of room. The swim bait wraps seems to be the best, most efficient, easiest access, take up the least amount of space. And the swim bait underground makes an assortment of different styles and stuff, but that big one that's right on the cover of my Instagram on May 11th. If you go check out my Instagram, you'll see that. That's the best way. I actually just, uh, I got like 25 more toxic bases last week and I, I just hit up Swimbait Underground. I was like, man, I need to get some more wraps. So um, swim, check Swimbait Underground out. They make the best uh, wraps. Again, for me, I not only put them in the wrap, but I put them in the plastic because they're just way easier to grab in and out, which again, I think you'll see on my video. So that's how I store them. And it's been, uh, been pretty good. And those wraps kind of fit anywhere in the boat. I mean, at least in my boat, they're not like the, the 3700s where they, they, you know, they're hard and they have to go. Like, you can kind of put them in the sides. You can kind of you, – they can kind of fit anywhere, um, which is nice. So, that's what I use. Yeah. What uh, – the bags that you put your baits in, are they, like, literally just like a plastic bag you'd find off Amazon or something? Or are they, like, a specific – uh, thickness of yeah. plastic or something. Uh, honestly, Loberg ordered them. So okay. they, I think he ordered them off Amazon. They, he ordered them for a bunch of our stuff. Cause we both are always in the same boat, like how to organize better. They don't look like anything special. They don't look extra thick. That might be nice. But what I found is yeah, Like even with a normal plastic bag, I got off Amazon that zips up. Yeah. The hook can go through, but if, I mean, most of the time they don't. And if you're, you put them in there, you know, you grab them out, the plastic slides on all the other plastic ones. So it's the easiest way. And again, if you watch that video, I think it explained, I think I explained all that and I show it in the video of like, this is how I do it. Maybe there's a better way out there, but that's the best way I've found. They're easy access. I can fit a bunch in there. The hooks aren't all tangled up. Cause that's the frustrating part a lot, right? Is like, you, if you piled a bunch in there without those bags, it'd be so hard. And 
you'd stick your hand. Like if you see me, I'd stick my hand. If I have them in the back, I'd be sticking my hand over all these hooks and I'm going to be sticking my hand for sure. But when they're in the plastic, I don't have that problem at all. So um, maybe some people have had better luck with the hook keepers, but again, for me, they seem to fall off all the time. So, uh, you know, so that, that seemed to be better for me. Yeah, and then the, I can still see the baits because they're see-through. The hook keepers also just look kind of like, they kind of look like an annoying extra step uh, to be yeah, honest. They do. I haven't yeah, tried it, but it just looks like a little bit more than I want to do. Yep. Um, yep. They absolutely do. Cool. Yep. Cool. So, um, well, I, first of all, we've talked for an hour and a half and I love it. Uh, I feel like, I don't know if I've got all of my swim bait questions answered yet, but we've answered a lot and I really appreciate that. I'm glad you let me kind of dig in on that one. Um, cause it's absolutely. just a cool topic, uh, to talk about. I think it's not something I could really get tired of. Um, but uh i know one thing we wanted to mention was you've got you're like in the process of starting a podcast uh and i want like Mm -hmm. i want to give you some time to like plug that tell me about it yeah um i am in the process of starting it we don't have an official start date i would assume it'd probably be in the next month or so um it's called christian anglers media so something god put on my heart very passionate about my faith most people that know me faith is very important to me um and uh and i want to talk about bass fishing and uh and I, I think our angle will be a little bit different than a lot. Um, I'll, I'll probably have, it, it looks like I'll probably do a lot of co-hosting. Um, and so it won't be just pure interviews. Uh, I really like to get really deep into topics. People that have heard me on other podcasts and different things. They, um, and it seems people seem to like that. So I love to go deep about certain subjects and get analytical and technical and all that stuff. So we'll probably do some deep dives in that. Um, uh, so it, 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 it'll probably vary a little bit different in how it looks each week. There'll be sometimes where I don't have a co-host. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're going to talk about bass fishing and, and my faith and how it's involved in that and, and how I think that also it can help others and impact others because, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world right now. And a lot of people are searching for, uh, hope and a lot of people get on my boat, man, they open up and people are, people are hurting. So not only do I want to talk about bass fishing, I want to have an opportunity to hopefully encourage people to find hope and, and joy and, and things to help maybe get them out of life troubles and whatnot. So it, it's kind of going to all be integrated. Um, it's probably the best way I know how to advertise it, I guess. Um, I'm really excited. And uh, we'll, we're, I think we're going to probably do two episodes a month. Um, it'll be every other week is, is what we look, is what we're looking at, how it's starting it may become more than that in the future, but I want to make sure that it, we can do something consistent um, where we don't drop back. So I feel like with two a month, I think that's really doable for, um us that are doing it and uh and we'll go from there so i'm really excited uh whatever happens happens and i'm just excited to 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 you know to take this step and and uh, have fun with it because i I love i mean i spend i spend hours and hours it seems like a day talking to friends and people about techniques and bass fishing and going deep and so like well shoot we can just do this on a podcast and uh you know have people on and talk about this stuff and whatnot so yeah i'm really excited man I, i hope it's uh I hope it's everything that I think is in my head right now. So we're working on finalizing the logo and finalizing a few last pieces and then we'll get, we'll get the ball rolling. Cool. Cool. Um, and then I guess last, I mean, where are folks going to be able to find it? Where can folks find out more about you? Like what sort of, what's your uh, social yeah. media situation? All, all that jazz. Yeah. So um, that, that'll definitely be on Apple um, podcast. And uh, honestly, the, the, the person that's helping me edit it, 
we have to talk about all the, what platforms it'll be on. We've ha- we've had conversations, but we haven't finalized exactly that. I know it'll be on, you know, again, Apple Podcasts and the main ones. Uh, in regards to following me and even hearing more about that, um, Instagram is probably the best place. I mean, you can follow my Facebook too, but I, I definitely am trying to use my Instagram more for phishing um, specifically. Oh, well, and actually, I take that back. I started a specific uh, phishing page on Facebook. So I have two Facebooks. I have my personal and then I have the kind of like a fan page deal or whatever they call that. So um, if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, um, you'll, you'll hear about everything related to the tour and fishing and even the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll use that to advertise when things get rolling. But, um, and, uh, I've been a little bit quiet on there the last couple of months, just because it's been the off season and we had our fourth baby and all that, but I'm getting ready to, uh, obviously the season starts up here pretty quick and I'm getting ready to, to, uh, embrace all of it and it'll be fun. So yeah, uh, check me out on Instagram. This is sad. I don't, oh yeah, I was going to say, I don't know exactly what my Instagram is. It's Dutra Fishing on Instagram and then on Facebook. I think I am also, I'm just Philip Dutra and you'll find, uh, yeah, it's just Philip Dutra. You'll see a picture of me in the jersey and whatnot, but that's my Facebook. And those are the two best places to, uh, to, to check us out. Cool. Well, man, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I tell you what, I can't wait to see you down in Okeechobee in not too long. I can't wait. I'm uh, I'm actually taking off in six days to head down there to take a look at the lake because I've never been there. So uh, very, very excited about Joby. So, yeah, I'll see you down there, Joby. And, uh, again, thanks for having me on the podcast. Always enjoy talking to you.